Well, as you can imagine, our preachers have all done a lot of homework in preparation for this series on Revelation, wrestling with the text, consulting books and commentaries. But in addition to all this scholarly work, I thought it might be helpful to re-watch the Lord of the Rings movies. Now, full disclosure, I am not a Lord of the Rings fanboy. <laughs> I've never read the books, and I have not watched all nine hours of the film trilogy. But there are some interesting parallels between the Book of Revelation and the Lord of the Rings. Both present us with epic stories of a cosmic conflict between the forces of good and evil. Both are filled with non-human beings, other worlds, imaginative scenarios, and lots and lots of fighting. And both are written from a Christian perspective. J.R. Tolkien was a devout Catholic and very clearly draws on biblical concepts and imagery. And we've talked a lot about apocalyptic literature in this series, trying to understand this unique literary genre. Well, there's a sense in which apocalyptic literature functioned in the ancient world the way sci-fi and fantasy literature functions today, uh, providing a way to address contemporary real-world issues through the lens of imaginary worlds and possible futures. Lord of the Rings isn't a true story, but it is a truth story. And obviously, the book of Revelation is true in a way that Lord of the Rings is not. But, but we still want to focus on the truths being communicated, not the literary devices used to communicate those truths. Whether you're a fan or not, you're probably familiar with the Lord of the Rings storyline. A mild-mannered hobbit named Frodo Baggins is charged with destroying the one ring of power that had corrupted virtually everyone who ever possessed it, and which had brought all manner of suffering and evil on the kingdoms of Middle-earth. He's accompanied on his mission by the so-called Fellowship of the Ring, a ragtag company of elves, dwarves, hobbits, and humans. But from the very start of this mission, Frodo and his companions are pursued by the evil minions of Sauron, the Dark Lord of Mordor, who will stop at nothing to possess the ring and subjugate all the lands and peoples of Middle-earth. At every turn, the dark forces of Sauron come after them, wraiths and orcs and irks and goblins. They pursue them on horseback. They drop from the sky. They rise up from the mud. They spring from the water. By the tens and hundreds and thousands they come, screeching and roaring and slashing and burning. The forces of evil just keep on coming. What chance do Frodo and his friends have of surviving the relentless onslaught, let alone making it to Mordor and destroying the ring. One by one, the fellowship begins to splinter and fall into despair over ever fulfilling their mission. Frodo and his friend Sam are left to make the long and treacherous journey to Mordor on their own. And along with them, we wonder how and if they will ever make it. Well, we'll come back to that story a little later on. But for now, let me suggest that the Apostle John and the Fellowship of Jesus followers 
living at the tail end of the first century AD, were probably feeling a lot like Frodo and his companions. Weary, outnumbered, afraid, and discouraged. The pagan empire of Rome was imposing its iron rule over all the known world. Just a decade earlier, the Roman army had ransacked Jerusalem, reducing the holy city to ruins, slaughtering tens of thousands of Jews. And now the empire had turned its fury toward Christians. Emperor Domitian had declared himself Lord and God, demanding that all the subjects of Rome bow to his authority or face the consequences. Jesus' followers were being ostracized and persecuted, thrown in jail, even executed. At this point, most of the eyewitnesses to Jesus had passed away. Some of them had been executed for their faith. And now John, perhaps the last living apostle, was in exile on the island of Patmos. What chance did this ragtag fellowship of slaves, peasants, and a few elites have of fulfilling their mission to make disciples of all nations? What hope did they have as they looked to the future? And would it be worth the struggle? Well, to a lesser degree, we might be asking those same questions and feeling that same sense of discouragement as we seek to fulfill our mission of disciple-making. Our world seems less interested in the gospel and more riddled with evil than ever in our memory. A recent survey by the Public Religion Institute reveals that over a quarter of the American people no longer identify with any religion at all. And the number of Americans who identify themselves as Christian is declining. But it's not just the decline in religion that can be discouraging. It, it's the bad news that assaults us from day to day. Global conflict, economic uncertainty, climate change, racial hostility, mass shootings, food and water insecurity, not to mention rising levels of loneliness and anxiety and despair we can begin to feel like Frodo and his friends, like the first century church, weary, overwhelmed, and discouraged. What hope do we have? Can we really believe in a better future for humanity? Will it be worth it in the end to be faithful to Jesus and our mission? Oh, these are questions believers have asked for thousands of years. And they're the questions we're going to go after today as we conclude our series from the book of Revelation. And now, so far we've learned that the revelation is, is from God. It's not a product of John's imagination. It was inspired by the Spirit and given to John to share with the world. It's about Jesus. He is the central character, the only one worthy to be trusted with the brokenness of humanity and the eternal purposes of God. It's to the church. It's a wake-up call, not just to the seven churches of the ancient world, but to every church in every time and every place, a call to faith and mission in the face of great evil and hardship. And it's for the world. Contrary to popular perception, 
The book of Revelation is good news for a world that often seems to be headed toward destruction. And that good news is what we're going to focus on today as we come to the final chapters and discover hope for the world. Three hopes in particular. But before we get to the good stuff in chapters 21 and 22, which may be the best chapters in all the Bible, we need to wrestle through chapter 20, which one scholar describes as the most debated chapter in the Bible. But even still, it reveals the first hope that we have, and it's the hope that one day, evil will be no more. Let's begin with the first few verses of Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, most of the debate surrounding this chapter has to do with the so-called millennium. I say so-called because the term millennium never actually appears in the chapter or anywhere else in the Bible, for that matter. In fact, this is the only place the Bible mentions a thousand-year period before the end of the age. Uh, According to John's vision, this period of time is characterized by the binding of Satan's power, to some degree, and by the reign of Christ and his people, to some degree. Now, we're not really told the specifics of that binding and that reigning, and so that's led to all kinds of speculation as to what's being described here. Now, we're going to have to do a little insider baseball here for a couple minutes, so apologies if this is more information than you're interested in, but it's been a debate among Christians for a long time. And and it it not only shapes how you read chapter 20, but, but how you understand the purposes of God and the times in which we live. And basically, there are three views on the millennium, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Now, both premillennialism and postmillennialism hold that the thousand-year period described here will be a literal 1,000 years of human history sometime in the future, in which Satan will be hindered from fomenting evil in the world, and in which Christ will visibly rule over the world in an era of shalom. Premillennials believe that Christ will return before that time and inaugurate those thousand years of shalom. Postmillennials believe that the church will usher in that age of shalom and that Christ will return at the end of those thousand years. Amillennialism holds that, that the thousand years have to be understood symbolically to represent the age in which we are now living, an age that was inaugurated at Christ's resurrection an age in which Christ is ruling from his exalted place at the right hand of the Father and exercising that rule through his people, the church. Now, there's a lot more we could say for and against each of these views. Uh, Enough for now to say that, like many in our tradition, I was educated in the premillennial view. 
looking for a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. But in recent years, along with quite a few others in our tradition, I've, I've come to more of an amillennial perspective on these things. I, I believe John is describing here the current age in which we live, sometimes called the church age, an age in which Satan has been defeated at the cross, his power has been limited and is limited by the work of the Spirit, an age in which Christ is now advancing his kingdom through the church. All right, so why does John mention a thousand-year period? Well, knowing that numbers are used symbolically in Revelation, maybe he was just telling his first-century readers that it was going to be a long time before the end of the age, and that they should be ready for a protracted struggle. Well, how, however you understand the millennium, John's vision tells us that this period of time will conclude with a great confrontation between the forces of evil and the power of God, a battle called Armageddon back in chapter 19. Uh, let's skip down in chapter 20, to verses 7 through 9. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nation in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number there like the sand on the seashore, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and false prophet had been thrown. Now, remember, as we've been pointing out all along in this book, this is not history, and it's not prophecy. It's a vision, a vision of spiritual realities being described in earthly terms. And so we have to look for the big picture and not get distracted or fixated on, on the visual details. And the big picture is that at the end of this millennial period, however long it is and whenever it happens, at the end of it all, evil will still be evil. Nothing will have changed in those thousand years. Satan will still be dead set against the people and purposes of God. And so, at the end of that age, Satan will be thoroughly and eternally destroyed. Now, that's the judgment we talked about two weeks ago. And as we said, it will be good for the world because it will mean that every evil thing, every evil power, every evil inclination will finally and forever be eradicated. Well, back to Lord of the Rings. Uh, we left Frodo and Sam at the end of the first film, wondering what their chances were of ever reaching Mordor and destroying the One Ring and its diabolical power. Full disclosure again, I completely skipped part two of the trilogy, The Twin Towers, and jumped right to part three, Return of the King. And after what felt like a thousand years of movie watching... <laughs> We finally got to the final scenes of the story. 
as the vastly outnumbered armies of Middle-earth make a suicidal assault on the Black Gate. They find themselves surrounded by the vast army of orcs under Sauron's power. At the same time, Frodo and Sam are struggling up Mount Doom, harassed all the way by the conniving and incorrigible Gollum. At a certain point, after recounting all the misery that's come upon them because of that cursed ring, Sam says to Frodo, then let us be rid of it once and for all. And after a life or death struggle with Gollum and with the seductive power of the ring, Frodo manages to throw the ring and Gollum into the, wait for it, lake of fire. Now, it's more like a river in Tolkien's imagination, but he's clearly drawing on the imagery here in Revelation. <laughs> and, and believe me, if you've sat through all nine hours of Lord of the Rings, sat through all the fighting and the sojourn and the suffering and the evil, when Gollum and that ring melt away into the fire, you breathe a great big sigh of relief. Finally, it's done. It's over. Evil has been vanquished, and the peoples of Middle-earth have been saved. And that's the first hope that we discover as we come to the end of John's revelation. That a day is coming when evil will be no more. Let us be rid of it once and for all, says Sam to Frodo. And so says King Jesus about every evil thing, every evil power, and every evil being. A day is coming when everything that's wrong with the world and with us will be no more. Hate, greed, lust, pride, violence, tyranny, exploitation, corruption. <laughs> Later on, we're told that even death itself will be thrown into the fire. A little earlier in the service, we heard, we heard the pain in Nia's lament as she reflected on Juneteenth. It was a cry for justice, for someone to understand, to do something, to put things right after all these years. And we hear that same cry throughout the book of Revelation, from the suffering and martyred saints crying out from under the altar, How long, O Lord? It's the cry of every enslaved person and every oppressed people group. It's the cry of every trafficked human being. It's the cry of every parent holding a sick or starving child in their arms. The cry of every friend or family member watching someone they love struggle with addiction or loneliness or mental health issues. How long, O oh Lord, till all this is put right? And our hope is that someday the returning king will say, no longer. And all of it will be thrown into the fire to be rid of once and for all. And as for that lake of fire, 
before we start conjuring up images of Dante's Inferno and a literal bonfire raging eternally somewhere beneath the earth, let's remember the symbolic nature of apocalyptic literature. John's making a point here, and the point he's making is that fire consumes, fire destroys, fire eliminates every trace of a thing. And so it will be when Christ returns, evil will be no more. And that clears the way for the second hope that we have, that good will be even more. Good will be even more. Now, we can move a little more quickly here because chapters 21 and 22 are a whole lot easier to hear than chapter 20. Let's read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Skip down to verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now notice, our hope isn't that we will leave this world and go to heaven. Our hope is that heaven will come down to earth. Isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray for? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Someday that prayer will be answered. There are two words for new in the Greek language. The first word, neos, means new in time, recent, just appearing. The second word, kainos, means new in quality superior, better. Uh, You might imagine a a grand, historic New England home, uh, neglected for decades, fallen into disrepair. You could tear it down and build a McMansion in its place. That would be a Neos home. Or you could carefully and skillfully restore it preserving its historic charm and significance, but making it suitable for 21st century living. That would be a kainos home. We're not hoping for a teardown of planet Earth. We're hoping for a makeover of planet Earth, an extreme makeover by the one who made it in the first place. Notice the one on the throne doesn't say, I am making all new things. He says, I am making all things new. That new creation will be superior, better, more of every good thing he made in the first place. More beauty. We're told that that the city coming down from heaven looks like a bride on her wedding day. Then skipping down to verse 11. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. 
Is John telling us we'll literally be walking streets of gold and passing through pearly gates? Of course not. It's apocalyptic literature. It's symbolic language. He's simply asking us to imagine the most rare and beautiful things we can think of, and then to imagine a world in which those rare and beautiful things are available to everyone, everywhere, all the time. Imagine a city with no rusty bridges, no grimy streets, no dilapidated buildings, and only good graffiti. More beauty. More harmony. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. So not only have heaven and earth become one, the nations of the world have become one. Nations that throughout human history have been at war with one another are now doing business with each other. Even Red Sox and Yankee fans will get along because no longer will there be any curse. Sorry, couldn't resist. More beauty, more harmony, more activity. Notice, it's not a garden that comes down from heaven. It's a city. Uh, someone asked me the other day uh, over dinner, if I could live anywhere for a year, where would it be? The first thing that came out of my mouth was Midtown Manhattan. Now, I love cities. <laughs> and there's always something happening in Midtown Manhattan. There's always something to do. Concert halls, art galleries, sports arenas, stores, restaurants, theaters, museums. Now, if you prefer gardens, that's okay. There's going to be a garden there too, and we'll look at that in a minute. But that garden is surrounded by all the things that make a city great commerce and culture and crowds and conversations. Well, that activity continues down into verse 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Now, we don't know what that service will look like, but it doesn't sound like we're going to be floating around on clouds and playing harps for all eternity. We'll be doing what we were created to do in the first place, putting our minds and our bodies to work as we exercise dominion over the earth that God has given to us. So more beauty, more harmony, more activity, more vitality. Uh, remember that, that garden we spoke of? At the center of it is a river. A river of the water of life flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. What kind of tree yields fruit every month? A new creation kind of a tree. This garden, this city, this new heaven and earth is a place of constant flourishing, and never-ending life. It's a vision of the earth at its very best, only more so. That's our hope for the new creation. So, evil will be no more, good will be even more, and finally, God will be with us like never before, forevermore. 
Let's look again, chapter 21, verse 3. Now the dwelling of God is with people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now that word dwelling is the same word used in the Old Testament to describe the tabernacle that portable tent that symbolized the presence of God in the camp. It's the same word used in the New Testament when we're told that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Throughout human history, God has been present to his people. But it's always been a, a, a temporary visit, a partial presence, a passing glimpse, a limited encounter. But in this new world, God will be fully present all the time with all of his people. We won't even need a temple, we're told. Did you notice that the city was shaped like a cube? 12,000 stadia in width, height, and depth. You know what else was shaped like a cube? The Holy of Holies that central place in the temple where the presence of God was, where only the high priest could go, and only once a year. But now, John tells us, the earth itself will be a temple, and it will be huge. This cubed city stretches 1,500 miles into the sky. There's room for a lot of people in that city. And look how accessible it is, 12 gates, three on each side, so people can come from every nation, from every direction. And the, the, the gates, we're told, will be open night and day. They will see his face, John says. Wait, what? See his face? No one has ever seen God's face. And now everyone will see it all the time? This is amazing. Now, some of you may be familiar with a, a devotional book called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of old Puritan prayers. Uh, I, I found my mother's copy of it when I was going through her things, and, and so I've been reading a prayer each day from it. Now, they don't all resonate with me, frankly, but a, a few days ago, I read these lines. When thou art present, evil cannot abide. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Beneath thy smile is peace of conscience. By thy side, no fears disturb. With thee, my heart will bloom. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there's nothing better than sensing his presence. It happens sometimes in a worship service when you find yourself overcome with gratitude and a praise and praise and a sense of the nearness of God. It happens sometimes when you're reading scripture and you sense the Spirit speaking directly into your life. It can happen when you're watching a sunset or, or holding a child in your arms or finding satisfaction in a job well done, or showing kindness to another human being. 
We are our best selves in those moments, and we are closest to God in those moments. But they're fleeting, aren't they? We want to hold on to them. We want to make them last. But some earthly thing, some human frailty always comes along and snatches us out of the moment. But someday, John tells us, in the new creation, those moments will last and last, 10,000 years and then forevermore. So that's the hope John offered to these beleaguered believers at the end of the first century. And, And it's the hope he offers to us a quarter of the way into the 21st century. The the hope that evil will be no more, that good will be even more, and that God will be with us like never before, forevermore. But now, what do we do with this hope? In the face of everything that's still wrong with the world around us, well, two things come to mind. First, we take hold of it. We take hold of this hope and we make it our own. A recurring theme in the Revelation is that not everyone will experience this new heaven and new earth. In spite of all the warnings, in spite of all the wake-up calls, in spite of all the invitations, not everyone will choose it. And God won't force it on us. If we don't want to spend eternity with God and his people in a redeemed and restored world, we don't have to. Now, we're not told exactly what the consequences of that choice will be. And we want to be careful here not to take literally images that were meant to be understood symbolically. Does a lake of fire mean eternal, personal, conscious torment? Or is it a metaphor to describe final destruction, meaning that those who refuse God's gift of life simply cease to exist? Or is it simply a way of telling us that we want to avoid that fate at all costs? Whatever it means, what we do know is that to be separated from God is to be separated from all that is good and true and beautiful. And God will let us make that choice if we want. So John urges us to take hold of this hope while we have the chance, to put our faith in the Lamb that was slain and to let his new creation begin in us and through us. So we take hold of this hope. Secondly, we share it with the world. The Revelation commissions us to be witnesses to these things. And Blair reminded us of that so powerfully last week. We love Jesus, we love like Jesus, and we point people to Jesus by the way we live. That's our mission. That's why we're still here. In the words of one commentator, as God's image bearers, We are called to extend God's presence throughout the earth by our faithful witness. 
anticipating the day when the whole world shimmers with his glory. Our task involves leading fellow human beings from every tribe and culture into fellowship with God so that they too might be overwhelmed by his presence. The church is meant to offer the world a foretaste of the future. To be a place and a people of beauty and harmony and activity and vitality. So we join God in making all things new by working for beauty and justice and peace and flourishing for all people everywhere. Well, do I dare quote Lord of the Rings one more time? In one of the final scenes of the final film, the newly crowned King Aragorn says to his gathered people, let us rebuild this world together that we may share in the days of peace. And in a similar way, our returning king calls us to join him in making all things new. And so the revelation ends with an invitation. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the church. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. As we've been learning all year long in this year of disciple-making, it's an invitation to life with God, with others, for the good of the world. If you've never said yes to that invitation, if you'd like to know more about what this life looks like and how it can be yours, send me an email, brian with a y at grace.org. But, but it's not an invitation we say yes to just once. It's an invitation we say yes to every day. As we said, as we head out the door with, with hope in our hearts and hope in our hands, offering it to the world. In Jesus' name, we are people of hope, even in the face of all that is wrong with the world. And so on this Father's Day, we're able to sing, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. May it be so, Lord. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this journey we've been on all year now, learning what it means to be disciples and to make disciples, to, to do life with you and with others for the good of the world. Thank you for the hope we have for ourselves and for the world. Thank you for the invitation to, to join you in bringing heaven down to earth. May we say yes to that invitation today and every day until Jesus comes again. Amen.